There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Climax. My name's Eve and I'm coming to you from Gadigal Land. Today I'm sharing with you an idea that is one of the three things that has stopped me from doom scrolling in the last lockdown. The number one is the subreddit witches versus the patriarchy. Number two is watching DIY videos of things I'm never going to make. And number three is solar punk. Solar punk is a art and political movement that basically imagines and then strives to implement not just you know, a stable atmospheric level of carbon dioxide, but the abolition and transformation of the systems that allowed something like climate change to arise. This is an episode of The Fire These Times with Joey Ayub and Andrew, also known as St. Drew on YouTube. Um, I've put all the show notes so that you can find them. They have a wonderful discussion and are both uh, really great at talking about how we can create a better and more livable world for everyone. So let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Fire These Times, the podcast bringing you conversations at the intersection of politics, culture, and the environment. I'm your host, Jubei Yup, and today we'll be talking to Andrew. Andrew identifies as a solo punk anarchist from Trinidad and Tobago, and he's behind the YouTube channel St. Andrewism. I wanted to have Andrew on to talk primarily about solo punk. Now, solo punk is defined as an art movement that envisions how the future might look if humanity succeeded in solving major contemporary challenges, especially climate change and pollution. It's something I've been getting into much more recently, and I have quite a number of exciting projects and plans and a number of other fun stuff that I won't get into right now because I want to focus on Andrew. As I mentioned, he has this YouTube channel called Saint Andrewism. And on that channel, he tackles topics such as what is solar punk, uh, the climate movement is broken, why revolution is therapy, an open letter to Gen Z, carnival and class struggle, and so on and so forth. And we managed to discuss quite a number of them in this episode. So I won't take too much of your time. I'll just say that uh, this will be the first of hopefully many episodes on solar punk. I'll try and find ways to always keep it like entertaining and, you know, informative and not just indulge in my geeky obsession with it. And yeah, I think that's it. So that's today's episode. This episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check the website for other methods. If you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Torabit. Thank you for listening and take care. My name is Andrew. I'm an Afro-Trinidadian writer, artist, and solar punk anarchist. I run a YouTube channel called St. Andrewism, and I also blog. I first discovered um, your channel 
after getting interested or like re-interested in, in Solarpunk. And you have this great video on Solarpunk. And I, I had this conversation with Emmy Bevancy. Uh, and in the end of these, of like my episodes, I usually ask for like book recommendations and stuff. And they recommended as just the genre in general of Solarpunk um, and Afrofuturism as well for that matter. So for those who don't know, would you mind just telling listeners what Solarpunk is and how did you yourself start getting interested in it? Oh, well, that's something I can talk about all day, honestly. I don't exactly know when I first heard about it. Um, I went to it on Tumblr or DeviantArt, but I just remember when I did find it, I got hooked very quickly, you know, it just, it's like, give me all the art you can get, you know. It's really, um, uh, it's kind of a fusion of art and politics, although it's primarily art, it starts to shift more towards politics the more you dive into it. Um, It's a bit of a literary genre as well, because it derives from the whole cyberpunk thing. Um, and, you know, it influences different media as well. Well, retroactively, I suppose, because people often reference the Miyazaki movies, like Frigid Away and Castle in the Sky as potential examples of Sulapunk. And, of course, um, Lissa Kayla Gwynn's books, like um, The Dispossessed. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really, it's a vision for the future that's, you know, based on sustainability and autonomy and social justice. It's part of the aesthetic, also praxis. So, like I said, it kind of started with art, but it took a loop to like community and continuing to relationship with the earth and land. And, you know, a lot of various stripes of socialists also kind of adopted it to fill in the gaps and the pitfalls of the modern environmentalist movement, sort of rethink our approach to this sort of thing. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just really um, uh, enjoying the fact that. A, a disproportionate number of book recommendations that I've also, like the ones I mentioned, I asked uh, guests to have at the end of episodes, which we'll do as well. Um, two of them mentioned The Dispossessed, and one of them mentioned Solarpunk, and I think another one mentioned also uh, Afrofuturism. And yeah, I don't know, I guess I guess it's something, it, it sort of says who I'm, I'm looking to, you know, who I'm actually inviting, such as yourself. And it's something that I'm, I'm definitely trying to get into more because it, it tries anyway. I mean, you know, uh, as you said, it's, it's relatively new. It's been mostly art, even though now there's a, a bit more politics to it as well. But it sort of attempts anyway to provide an alternative to our usual doom and gloom without being in denial of the, like the, the seriousness of the challenges ahead, obviously. Although I, I would say that yeah. some aspects of the Solipunk movement do fall into the trap of greenwashing, that tends to happen with folks who are now getting into it. And so they have really interrogated those assumptions and stuff. But if you go on, like, for example, Reddit has a Solarpunk community. Um, people in the comments, when they do see greenwashing, they will usually call it out. And for those who don't know, greenwashing is when you give architecture or products or whatever the case may be, the veneer of being, you know, environmentally friendly and whatnot, when it actually is. So, you know, that, that is an issue that does exist around sort of newbie solar punks, but it's an issue that's being addressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thanks for that as well. And so, like, you introduced it uh, pretty well. And so linked, linked to solar punk, uh, which you also mentioned briefly, is like the, the, the idea that the way we talk about the climate and climate change and the climate emergency and all of that, the climate crisis, is, is pretty broken. Um, 
not just in the sense of like not thinking of alternatives to capitalism as frequently as we should be doing by now, but also in the sense that the climate movement itself, at least the, the more vocal one, the most vocal one, has only fairly recently started taking seriously matters such as social justice, indigenous rights, um, environmental racism, and so on and so forth. Uh, I know this, even even as I say this, it's a bit contentious because, you know, you can easily argue, well, that that's a specific climate movement in the West, which is more than fair enough, but it has dominated. Um, sure, every, every, the, the social capital and yes, media yes. influence to some degree. Um, so what's your argument as to uh, for why the climate movement as of now has been broken? And... How do you see the, the latest trend, let's say, compared to the older ones, if that makes sense? So I'm going to be responding to the first question first with the issues of the environmentalist movement. Mm-hmm. And my issues of the environmentalist movement also sort of apply to people who I would say should know better, people on the so-called left. And that is, I think people are a bit lacking in their material analysis of what's going on with climate change. There's a recognition that climate change exists. I don't think people are like really diving into the, to materially sort of analyze what is happening because it's happening right now across the world, you know, climate collapse is occurring, but people don't really understand it in what complexities. A lot of people believe that it can be reformed away or even that it can be revolutioned away for those who go that way, that route. But I think there's enough emphasis placed on the fact that a lot of those tipping points have already been tipped and our task is addressing those and preparing for the consequences of those um, and adjusting our sort of vision for the future in a more realist light. Like we may not be able to make it to space, you know, we may be able to suggest after the this process, renew our relationship with you rather than continuing to destroy it. People believe, a lot of people, I think, believe that um, we can be able to maintain different lifestyles um, despite the climate collapse when so much of the way we live, you know, is predicated on the destruction of the earth. And I basically, to put a long story short, I think people don't, don't grasp how deep the issue is and how radically things are going to need to change. And could you repeat the second question? Sure, sure. I think there, it's fair to say, anyway, that there has been a growing um, awareness or trend or whatever we want to call it within that movement, broadly speaking, especially with like younger folks, Gen Zers, I would say, um, that you know, applying a more intersectional lens to the issue. Although I do think that fundamentally... I do agree with what you just said, that there's also a, there's still a sense that we can quote unquote stop it rather than we, I mean, we can reduce its impact and we can make it less deadly uh, as opposed to what we're currently still doing. But there is, a, there is a problem with the notion that we're just, you know, it's just a matter of changing policy today and therefore it's going to stop it. Putting that aside, there is definitely a growing sense that at least from, from you know, my standpoint, from what I can tell, that matters such as like social justice, indigenous rights, uh, even like environmental racism, 
these things are at least slightly more addressed within the younger uh, side of the of the climate movement than something that well that I had ever seen before for that matter if that makes sense yeah yeah at least at least that's starting to build of course there's still some elements of ignorance and whatnot but you know I do what okay. I can and people do what they can to sort of raise awareness of what's going on because mm-hmm. I mean the wisdom that exists in indigenous cultures and their relationships to the land is wisdom that we are going to need to apply, you know. If we are going to look to technocratic geoengineering solutions, they're not going to save the day. In fact, they could quite potentially make things worse. We're going to have to look at how we can sort of scale back our lifestyles, learn from, you know, an infringed section of lands, learn from these cultures, how we can best relate to the environment in a more sustainable healthy way and how we could design our lives and our society in a more healthy way. Yeah, it's actually something that I uh, I did a couple of episodes. One is upcoming, one already came out. Um, one, so the first one was on how to limit uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it's this scenario, like a societal transformation scenario, as they called it by Eichenheim and Linda Schneider. I mean, they were two of the co-authors of that, so that paper. Um, and the idea really is that the consequences are here with us already, but they would likely not impact. I mean, we know this for a fact that they will not impact everyone in the same way, at least not in the short term. Yeah, in, the long, in, the long, in the long term, it's a bit less uh, understood. And I can tell you, like, from a, uh, a small parenthesis, that as, you know, from, from as someone who lives in Switzerland, I can definitely say that many people probably most people still don't think that this is going to affect them directly, even though maybe the, the rational part of, like, they may know it intellectually, but not in any um, deep way, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I think that's 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 something that's definitely an issue. There's sort of a, a disconnect between, you know, what is, you know, the facts, and people's, I guess, emotional reckoning with what is, you know. Yeah, definitely. Recently, there was a, a national vote on whether to have a trade deal with Indonesia, which was being impo- uh, opposed by, uh, well, among other things, environmentalists pointing to the the, um, the devastating uh, palm oil plantations in, in Indonesia. And most people still voted to uh, allow that trade deal, because at the end of the day, when everything is about, quote-unquote, the economy, this is something that, you know, Okay, I'll just I'll just say it this way because it's a frustration of mine. It's, a, it's a, something that's a recurring theme even on this podcast. The what we call the economy, what we call like basic uh, models of economics, tend to not take into account any other economics other than what you might call either neoliberalism or even like old school capitalism. And it's something that you can really really see in the way the Swiss, the attitude from the Swiss government towards uh, even the, like the pandemic. It only took now, and I think actually we're recording this on March 13th, and basically in a couple of days is when testing will be available and free in Switzerland. So that, that's an entire year into the pandemic. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Wait, uh, so test, the testing is now opening up in Switzerland? Yeah, now, now it's accessible. Before you could do it uh, by, if you have insurance, uh, the insurance will cover it. Uh, wow, but I see. Before that, and that even that was a recent thing, I think as of November 2020, before that, you can only get testing if you had actual symptoms. 
So there was no preventative uh, measure really. Uh, Switzerland, it's a, it's a big case study now as to how not to do things. And that's, right. I think- I mean, locally of, we had free access to testing. Right? Yeah. So that's well, quite shocking to me. Well, yeah, it's, I think it's shocking to many people. Uh, unfortunately, it, I don't know if it would be shocking to like people who live here, unfortunately. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a big problem. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm trying not to, to rant too much about it, but it's, right. it's, it's something that for me just symbolizes like just that and the, how people tend to vote. It is changing with the younger generation as well. Like that, there's a, there's a very clear generational trend, very similar to like stuff in the UK or France or other places in Europe. But um, yeah, uh, the way people vote tends to really be what you might call like uh, business first uh, sort of uh, mentality. And so yeah, I, so I, I kind of I kind of went on a tangent there. Sorry, but part of you know all of this, the the I guess what I'm, I'm considering like at the root of this frustration, other than a necessary materialist analysis or whatever, is just this this lack of imagination or this lack even of, of imaginary, I, I should say, as to what could be counted or you know alternatives that we can think about to our current predicament, even though we are going through a pandemic. And part of this. Uh, I hope this is not too awkward of a transition, but like part of this imagining slash creating a different future, like inevitably requires us to deal with ourselves. And I don't just mean this in a surface level, you know, be the change you want to see in the world kind of thing, which is fine if it's taken seriously, but often it's not. But rather like acknowledging, I guess I'm just acknowledging that we may bring baggage, if you see what I mean, to, to revolutionary settings, which could do more damage than good. So let me just explain myself if that's okay. Um, I, you know, I come from an activist background. I have some, almost a decade now of, of being on the streets or following people who are on the streets or friends of mine or whatever. And it's just something that at some point becomes very obvious that in organizing spaces, for lack of a better term, or like in activist spaces in general, um, there tends to be a lack of acknowledgement that we are entering the space, let's say, with baggage. Like we ha we're coming with something um, in our past or in our present for that matter concerns of ours, anxieties, what have you. Um, yeah. When it's not recognized, I feel like that can actually take over necessary work for kind of more long-term transformative work, if that makes sense. You have a, a few videos. One that I'm especially thinking of is like, why does the revolution need therapy? And I'm guessing we can sort of add to that the other videos that you have on like the self-care being broken, which I think is a very similar argument to, to what I've been thinking of. Or indeed your videos are like dealing with stress, even like philosophies of love. So I'll sort of throw them all back at you and sure, sure. ask why do you think um, the revolution needs therapy? Like another topic I could really spend a lot of time talking about, <laughs> which is Go for sort it. of why I have a lot of videos about it. Um, the psychological prison, I suppose, was a concept that I first heard of, but sort of intuitively understood from an anarchist writer and former Black Panther named Ashanti Alston. Um, I'd read his pamphlet on it, um, The Psychological Dimension, Childhood in the Psychological Dimension of Revolution. And he speaks about how, you know, we are suppressed from our childhood and inculcated or, you know, sort of brainwashed into a sort of acceptance of our domination and sort of a paralyzation of our liberty. So he calls on people, and I concur to 
processing question and criticize you, you know, your base assumptions, you know, to break out of these mindsets of capitalist realism, state realism, workerism, patriarchy, ageisms, and you know, all those all those assumptions and biases and modes of oppression that we sort of take for granted, like we may not be integrating. Um, and we end up perpetuating in our praxis, perhaps under a different coat of paint or under different language. You know? We still hold on to these attitudes and these gestures and these traditions that are actually feeding right back into the system. You know? We end up losing sight of the world we want to create. And I think it's really sad. You know, I've seen it happen again and again with, with revolutionaries, with historical figures, with you know, activists who I know, you know, I think it's very important to ruthlessly interrogate all that exists, you know, to decondition yourself and to be open to constantly learning, not just from books, but from people, from people's experiences and taking into your own experiences as well. And um, I definitely talk about this as well in dealing with stress, because we are so stressed and overworked, you know, everyone's working or out of jobs and things. So we lose our time and we lose our life and we need to have an understanding of how that is affecting us, how that's affecting our attitudes. But at the same time, we can't individualize these solutions to stress, which is an issue I have with the whole self-care industry. You know, it's very hyper-consumerist and it really individualizes care. When what I advocate for is, um, you know, solidarity, support groups, um, stronger bonds, stronger love, community, mutual aid. I have a video on mutual aid coming out um, later this month. Um, it's the 15th of March right now. It should be coming out on the 24th. So you look out for that. But, you know, I, I want people to realize that we can't look at individual or small-scale solutions these, you know, we have to look at it sort of a community, look at it through a community lens, you know. And I'm reminded of the work of Bell Hooks, who I do not reference enough in my videos. I have referenced her in a few, but her books, and especially her book, All About Love, and another book, which I would recommend later, um, they really undergirded a lot of my work, and they really undergirded a lot of my advocacy, because I'm a strong believer in, you know, in love, as cliche as that may sound, in, you know, deep connections and in shedding this competitiveness and shallowness and commodification that capitalism encourages in our relationships in favor of, you know, love and connection and care. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I can only think of the many, many, um, like even much more, let's say, seasoned activists than, than myself in, in Lebanon that have ended up being like burnt out and uh, unable to really function either sacrificing like personal relationships for quote-unquote the cause or taking that baggage to the cause and actually harming the cause and I'm putting the cause in, in like quotations but this is something that is often not thought about I, I think there's definitely like in in the wake of like the me too movement and everything there's 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 a there's a growing appreciation for that 
I can definitely say that a lot more of these, let's say, patriarchal, uh, like the legacies of, of patriarchy and the ongoing effects of it, I think that's being more challenged than something that I've, I've at least, you know, as I said, I've been doing this for 10 years now. I can definitely say that in the past three years, four years, it's have been happening more frequently than before. So I guess, I guess that's a, I guess that's, I mean, that's definitely a positive sign. Um, but that is also like part of that is I, I look at what's happening now, like right now in Lebanon, and I sort of see difficulties, a lot of difficulties, or at least from the, from my standpoint, like my interpretation of this, other people might disagree, but a lot of people are unable to form bonds with one another, despite the crisis that we see beyond sort of like your immediate family and, and that sort of thing. I'm not saying this doesn't happen. There are, we, we know of stories where you have communities that are sort of helping one another and all of that, but you also have a lot of instances where you would just have like a small a uh, shop owner who, you know, doesn't make uh, ends meet either being attacked or yelled at by people who are starving, whereas the bankers and the politicians and all of those guys are totally fine. And it's just one of those things that it's, it's not just that. So I hope listeners don't get me wrong. I'm not, and I'm not blaming anyone here other than the bankers and the politicians, obviously. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the person yelling or the person being yelled at, um, are different and I'm actually saying the opposite in, the, in this specific example they're both kind of being screwed over yeah um but there is, is a, a resistance I guess or at least a hesitancy towards opening up these spaces towards something that's more anti-patriarchal or feminist or whatever we've definitely seen them since 2019 a bit more of those but like yeah. I'm sure feminist activists in in Beirut uh, you know would notice even more than, than me right now because I'm not there anymore. But it's something that they had to struggle with quite a lot um, to make that space, to create that space. And so I guess the, the question that I had and the, the reason why I asked you this, uh, like the importance of therapy in revolutionary settings and why the revolution needs therapy, to, to put it that way, is, is really that, is that in, if this was a revolution and an uprising for justice, then it is only basic that this would include feminism, for example. And the fact that it's something that needs to be added, it's something that feminists need to actually struggle to make it possible. Um, not even as like one of the dominant demands, let's say, but you know, so to just make it to the point where it's sort of accepted or tolerated. Yeah, there's um, some sort of barriers that, yes. that exist there. And I think what a lot of people don't realize, what a lot of men don't realize, is as long as those barriers exist, you know, neither party is going to be able to live fully and fulfillingly. There's not going to be liberation without women's liberation. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had a, an episode um, the, on, on a similar topic on actually, so there's, a, there's an episode that I did, uh, episode 27, with uh, Chuck Derry. He's this American, um, actually don't know what his job is, but he worked with the, works with the Gender Violence Institute. And the episode was about this essay that he wrote on uh, the risks of psychologizing patriarchal oppression. And, and like that's the title. And the argument that he was making, which I, I largely agreed with, I think uh, we could have taken it a bit further, but 
didn't have much time, was that a lot of the time we simply say that someone who is, uh, like a man who is violent against a woman is just doing so because that man is not feeling okay or whatever, you know, kind of whitewashing it. And his argument was that it's not just that, but it's also because the man gets away with it most of the time because we live in a society where it's simply taken for granted. Of course, this changes from society to society. And as I said, uh, there seems to be, thankfully, like less tolerance towards at least the most obvious forms of violence, um, which tend to be the most immediate ones, obviously. But yeah, I guess I'm still a bit uh, wary of the fact that it's not taken for granted that a revolution needs to be feminist, for example. It's just not taken for granted that, that this isn't the starting point, if you see what I mean. This is something that needs to be fought for by specific by a subgroup of the activists in general to convince the other activists that this is something that needs to be addressed at a wider level, if that makes sense. And this is something that I definitely uh, I'm still pretty frustrated by. And like you know, I'm I'm a I'm a cis straight dude, so I'm I'm not the one bearing the brunt of it anyway. But yeah. I guess another another like sort of angle to this. Uh, actually, no. Let me just ask you if that's okay to sort of expand on the you know the mutual aid aspect to this. Uh, it's an upcoming video, so we can take advantage of that. How how does it relate to a different way of thinking of self care, for example? Um, well, I definitely believe that our self care needs to expand beyond itself, you know. But I definitely don't think that we should just dump your traumas on other people or whatever. I, I do believe that your therapy, quote unquote, is not complete without um, integrating community and your social bonds and your friendships and whatnot. We are social creatures and as such, we can't do this alone, you know, and that's a trick that capitalism plays in our mind, you know, that we are these atomized individuals and that ultimately we are all that we have and whatever, when the opposite is the case, you know, we are incomplete without community. I don't mean that in the sense of a sort of a hive mind kind of thing, I just mean in the sense of um, what is the individual for the community and what is the community without the individual, you know? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that as well. Uh, Amy Bevency, a previous guest, had this, uh, like, group in which they basically practice what, what they call, like, emotional anarchism. And the idea behind that is actually pretty similar to, to what you just mentioned. I mean, it's the same thing. It's, it's putting mutual aid in practice and uh, looking at ways of, without like sort of denying the, the, the one's individuality, of course, uh, seeing or um, exploring anyway, how uh, we interrelate with one another uh, in a way that is usually, as I said, like not, um, or like, yeah, it's usually not recognized in, in settings that, you know, from the so-called left or whatever that should be, should anyway, or one would think more, more like obvious by now. Yeah, I think, um, as you're on that topic, I think we should all, mm -hmm. and it's something I'm planning on doing within the next couple of weeks, take a moment to log off, you know. It's sort of a meme, but 
We all need to take a break from time to time. I, I've been sort of plugged into politics and stuff. But even before I saw my YouTube channel, but it's been kind of non-stop since I saw my YouTube channel. And so I, I definitely want to take a break. I have a couple of videos ahead in terms of writing my scripts and producing and everything. I think I'm, I'm just going to take a moment to sort of, you know, literally log off and take a step back, you know, touch some grass, paint the painting, you know. Yeah, yeah amen to that. Uh, it's something that I uh, was sort of forced on me in some ways by the pandemic. I just had to, I was already hyper online before, but then with the pandemic, it became even more, uh, well, more of a problem. And I, I had to force myself essentially to take step backs uh, semi-regularly at this point. Um, yeah, so I, I guess, so, sorry, since you brought this up, um, because the, this is something that I think is related to like what we might call like proper self-care. And it's something that I, I guess, okay, this is, I don't know if this is accurate, but I guess more people know about this now with the pandemic. There's just been more think pieces and whatever from at least from from what I've noticed or maybe I guess, but the reason why I started thinking that way at least in in the past year or so, is that I I've become very frustrated when by seeing, or at the fact that I've seen a lot of people that I know, like uh, either acquaintances or actually some close friends, act in certain ways on online, that I know, is not them. If that makes sense, I know that it's so more like the the persona they have online taking over, and the only solution to that is actually logging off and taking time off and rethinking certain things and priorities, blah blah blah. But it can be very easy to forget that uh, if you're hyper online and if you're. Um, really following like the daily grind of how of like i don't know how you want one would describe it but this you know what what social what silicon valley calls engagement and yeah it's, it's all like, of that it's a real it's almost like 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 drugs you know they have us like lab rats yep hooked on these things i mean it's it's habits i'm still like struggling to break like I've, I've tried to set this rule for myself where, you know, I don't jump onto Twitter until after lunchtime, that sort of thing, you know, because it's very easy to, you know, literally jump from social media to social media as soon as you wake up, you know, you like to check Twitter, you yeah. check Reddit, you check Instagram, you check WhatsApp, you check so on and so forth, you know, and it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a drain on your time and it, it, this doesn't help anybody, you know, all the best work that you're doing you will be doing and even beyond work because i don't want to talk about work too much but a lot of the best moments of our life well all the best moments of our life will not be you know scrolling through twitter it'll be you know connecting with our loved ones and if we could sort of focus on that rather than arguing with first name bunch of numbers on twitter.com we'll be better off for it you know Agree with that, and I've been, you know, I've mentioned I almost deleted Twitter a few months ago. Now, unfortunately, I have to keep it for work, and now, but I'm trying to Likewise. find the Yep, I'm trying to find a way to build a more long-term alternative. Um, 
it's really not easy. Network effects are a real thing and they're a big problem. But yeah, you know, on on that uh, uh, on that topic, I, I would just say that like I have, an, I would definitely have a lot of episodes on this because it's something that I'm still trying to to think through and to go through. And I go through these experiments, basically, is what I call them. I go through like I tell myself, well, between this time and that time, I won't do this or. I will have like um, I don't check anything in the morning. That's that's actually sacrosanct, sac- sacrosanct by now. Uh, I just I wake up at five a.m. and I just don't check anything before it's eight or nine. And even after that, I tend to try anyway. I'm not saying I do this perfectly, but I try to just stick to what I want to do and what I feel is uh, like productive and useful and and even like you know pleasurable i guess i would say as well like what is actually interesting to go through and i feel like this is like solar punk you know it's something that i feel is interesting to go through but it's not something that i can do like a deep dive let alone actually contribute to it like write about it talk about it whatever yeah uh, i mean w- without a st- step back in some way sometimes yeah i mean that's another thing right we do sort of an earlier point you're making we do make mistakes right in terms of trying to set these rules for ourselves when it comes to social media and you know technology as a whole we make mistakes and you know i think it's very important just as an aside to forgive ourselves for those mistakes and to just be willing to you know adapt and move forward rather than being like damn i broke my rule i feel terrible let me keep scrolling you know <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's what I was, I was, I guess I would just emphasize that I, I, ha- I have had and I still have some rules, but I, I break them a lot. And it's, it makes more sense to me to keep them anyway and to sort of work on them and see which ones work and which ones don't. Yeah, than spend, up, you know? Exactly. Then spending too much time just feeling guilty that I just broke my own rule or whatever. Um, and I say this, you know, I, I actually... I started doing that. Like in the beginning, it was actually all like self guilt tripping and whatever. It just got to the point where that wasn't even working, to be honest. So I was just looking at at different ways of dealing with that big problem and the frustration that I mentioned earlier on. That it's not taken. It's not more understood. It's definitely a lot of people know that like there is a problem with social media and with technology. Like vaguely speaking. But the way we interact with it and the way it has already shaped us in ways that I feel we don't fully recognize, especially in the past decade, is, is something that I, I'm trying to, to um, let's say, like deconstruct in my own life and for like the end goal being also to be able to help others deconstruct it because it's such a big and overwhelming problem and network effects especially mean that it's almost impossible for many people to get their news from anywhere else or to be connected to other people um, in this very, very basic way, even pre-pandemic, you know. So I have a, so I'll, I'll kind of end that, uh, close that parenthesis in some way, a very long one. But um, I wanted us to sort of go back into maybe more local uh, context, like specifically on Trinidad and Tobago. I haven't had any episodes so far on Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, I would assume uh, that the audience or like the listeners may know a bit, but probably not much. And the, the, but the topics that we're discussing, you know, are in many ways global. But I, w- I would be curious if you sort of can bring up 
your own like Trimbagonian background, uh, like at the risk of sounding too vague, uh, how has that impacted your politics? What are sort of like some specificity, let's say, to your own context that you feel would be relevant here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was born and raised on the island of Trinidad and, you know, occasionally visiting Tobago for vacation. Um, so I, I know a little bit less about their unique tensions. Um, but there are definitely a lot of groups and interests that are at play on our, you know, relatively tiny island, which a lot of people may not consider, you know, and they might just see, oh, it's probably just, you know, like the, all the other Caribbean islands, just yeah. probably a bunch of black people or whatever. But um, we have a quite, quite the mixed bag. We have very, unfortunately, unfortunately very small indigenous community um, due to how the colonists ravaged the island with thieves and whatnot and avoiding. It's a very, very small community and they are basically marginalized out of existence. They are not really discussed, they're not acknowledged, they're just kind of there. Um, and also a lot of them are pretty much integrated into the mainstream culture, so their unique issues aren't really discussed. Um, there are, of course, also the local whites, you know, when they're holding um, the Spanish, the French, and the English, although we all speak English now. And, you know, they ruled for a solid couple hundred years, and up to this day, they still influence our politics. They still profit from our industry and they still maintain strong ties with our former colonizers, the UK especially. Apart from the colonizers, um, they of course brought in African slaves um, of whom I am descended. I actually, I'm not very far descended from slaves. Um, my great-great-grandmother passed just after I was born, and she was raised by a slave, so it really wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, and after the abolition of slavery, um, the Indian, and as an East Indian, and the Chinese indentured laborers were brought over by the British, and so they ended up coming to work the fields, and of course, the ruling class, doing what the ruling class does, sort of prevented those tensions between the Africans and the Indians. The Chinese were actually a pretty, always a pretty small minority compared to the Africans and the Indians. Not as many Chinese had come over because it was mostly Chinese men who had come over, whereas the Indians, usually it was whole families that came over. Uh, um, but of course, there were a couple more waves of immigration, especially after the Cultural Revolution and stuff. And they still play a role in our economy, and they still have you know connections with mainland China, and that you know that plays a role in our politics. We recently opened up a Chinatown in Port of Spain, donated by the Chinese government. Um, in addition to those groups, there's also the Lebanese and Syrian communities. They came just before the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. They were mostly Christians, they sort of fell in the Roman Catholic Church, and they brought textiles and whatnot. So they have, uh, they amassed a lot of wealth, and now they are in a fairly elite position on society. They are basically 
seen as white in Trinidad. And most recently, of course, there have been small communities from West Africa and the Philippines and whatnot that have come to Trinidad as well, but they are fairly small. Most recently, there's been a massive wave of Venezuela migration because for those who don't know, Trinidad is like on the same continental plane as Venezuela and the rest of South America. So we actually have a very small um, body of water between us and Venezuela. Mm -hmm. So we've had, um, I think it was actual numbers aren't known because obviously a lot of them came, most of them came over illegally, but it's estimated that somewhere around, I believe it was 100,000 have come over somewhere between 50 to 100,000. And considering we're an island of 1.3 million as of the last census in 2011, that, you know, that's gonna have a major impact as well. We're already seeing the sort of tensions that are rising, the xenophobia and stuff that's growing onto that. And of course, growing up, it's very easy to see the impact of colonialism on how it has shaped our nation. You know, I mean, I, myself, my mind was colonized. Um, pretty extensively because that's what it means to be a colonized subject. Um, but as I grew up, I grew out of it and learned and expanded my understanding of our situation. And you really see colonialism at play today. You know, a lot of people, people on, on internet don't recognize it or don't have the words to describe it, but it's very clear that we have not come that far, come that far, sorry, from the extreme classifieds and divisions and government corruption and racism and colorism and all those things that were developed in the colonial era. Most glaringly, of course, being classism because a large part of the national conversation centers around um, the education system because we have retained a lot of the colonial aspects of it. You know, we have the gender segregation still um, in a lot of the schools. We have the class divides between the prestige schools and the government schools, the prestige schools being run by religious boards usually. Um, we have, of course, entrance exams. So we have an entrance exam from primary school to secondary school. We have an exam after the end of secondary school. We have an exam after the end of post-secondary school, which is lower and upper six. Um, we have a lot of barriers, basically. So tutoring and, and lessons play a, a big role in the education system. Um, you know, a lot of times teachers in the school get the chance to teach everything, and it's a reliance on tutors to fill those gaps. Of course, they are vast. Um, disparities in terms of access to resources between the government schools and the prestige schools. So mm -hmm. that really affects people's opportunities. And so if people can't afford, you know, lessons or tutoring, they really get the short end of the stick, you know. And it's also mm -hmm. a staggering lack of class consciousness. There's the whole notion of, you know, black capitalism or capitalism coming to save the day. There's of course the imported homophobia and queerphobia as a whole that came from the British Empire, you know, all those ancient laws that we are only now starting to overthrow. 
and of course, um, very significantly, there's like a serious crime problem. But because of our location, um, we are to the rest of the Caribbean and right next to, you know, South America, we are a hub of gun trafficking, human trafficking, you know, sex trafficking, drug trafficking. And you really see that, that impact as well. There are gangs at play, um, usually though limited to their respective areas, but a lot of corruption and illicit wealth funnels through politics and a lot of violence takes place against underprivileged communities and against women. In fact, there's recently been a wave of protests and demonstrations because a lot of women, for such a small island, a lot of women are going missing all the time, never to be heard from again. What they are heard from again, it's because they are, you know, deceased, they're found in a ditch or they're found in a river, whatever the case may be. And so there's obviously organ trafficking and stuff going there as well. So it's, it's like a lot going on and what some may initially perceive as a, you know, tropical paradise, you know, but we're dealing with a lot. Yeah. Okay. I went off in a bit of a tangent there, but. I well, know, not at all, thanks. That's sort of a summary and our condition. Yeah. No, thanks for that. And thanks a lot for also mentioning the, the Syrian Lebanese uh, community as well. It's something that I definitely want to get into more. Uh, it's something that many people in Lebanon don't actually know much about or in Syria. But I will, I will hopefully dedicate more time to that. So like, with everything you just said, and again, thanks for that, what might a, you know, a sort of punk anarchist growing up in Trinidad and Tobago, you know, see or experience something I don't know if that makes much sense. Maybe you will be repeating yourself. I don't know. But like, what, what, see what I'm trying to get at, like the specificity of your context. So, okay, let me, let me, I'll explain that, that by just uh, mentioning my own background. Because I grew up in post-war Lebanon, I'm both like fine-tuned to like sectarian rhetoric. But at the same time, I, up until recently, was not fine-tuned to racism or classism or xenophobia or sexism, et cetera, et cetera. Because for the most part, these are not things that were dealt with in my in my environment, in my world, let's say. Right. right. Uh, it's something that I, uh, you know, unknowingly or knowingly basically benefited from, just due to the structure that exists in post-war Lebanon. So, like, on the one hand, I could be fine-tuned to one thing, but less so to something else due to the specific nature of where I grew up and when I grew up. The two are very important. Like, you know, you, you're... A certain age, growing up in a certain context at a certain time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Would you say that that has affected your affection, let's say, towards solar punk anarchism in any way? If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have a lot of well, being on an island, of course, there's that consciousness of the looming threat of climate collapse. Although, right. like compared to other Caribbean islands, we tend to escape like the intense hurricanes and stuff because the path of the hurricanes tends to avoid us entirely. We still do face, you know, tropical storms and depressions and people's homes get flooded and their landslides. And even right now, we're supposed to be in the dry season and the rain has been basically pouring nonstop for like two days now. And so there's definitely that aspect of it. The very clear impact of climate climate collapse 
on our daily lives. I also see the um, failure of our infrastructure to respond to that, you know, like the way our city and our, our capital city and stuff was being designed, we can't really respond to that. Not just the infrastructure, but also the sort of structure uh, of politics and whatnot, how incapable uh, our government as, you know, a global South nation government has been to respond to this. You know, and the way that they profit off of the continued corruption and continued extractivism that's taking place. And that's something I neglected to mention earlier. Um, Trinidad is actually very oil rich. So as a result, we have a lot of oil companies and gas companies influencing our politics and extracting our resources. And we are about to see the tail end that the consequences of that because you know, the reserves dry up and you know the coppers run bare. In fact, we have a bit of a US dollar crisis in the country because we lack that currency at the moment. But yeah, having all those sort of financial and political tensions at play growing up, you know, seeing classism at play as well racism at play as well. You know, those have all like influenced my perception of hierarchy and my perception of how we can address, you know, the climate crisis. Um, seeing as well how, you know, businesses and religious groups have, you know, influenced our education, our politics and whatnot. Seeing people being the island, um, you know, sort of a brain drain taking place, the inefficacy of our bureaucracy to sort of account for, for the, the wealth of potential that exists in our people, you know, um, what those has, have influenced, you know, my perception, as well as seeing the disdain that people tend to have for both major political parties, the PNM and the UNC, um, that has also influenced things. It's very clear that no matter who's in charge, there's corruption taking place either way. And yeah, I mean, on a less sour note, we have some great culture, great music, great arts, great food, great festivals. And that also has influenced my politics to some extent because I just imagine all the people, all the creative people that are on this island who could do so much more if not for the structure of our society and the damage that capitalism, like the, the damage that capitalism inflicts on our country. So, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I love it here, though. I guess I asked it to always try and have both like local and global perspective at the same time, have both of them sort of interplay with one another. One, one thing that I feel is often missed out whenever you have two people, let's say two anarchists, speaking to one another or whatever, is of course like, you know, there might be this appeal to some larger ism or some larger vision of the world or whatever, but it tends to, in my view anyway, it tends to be like, so basically what I'm trying to say is that when we don't uh, mention the specific context or like the specificities of, of our own experiences, our own lived experiences, I guess, it can, uh, like, we can just miss out on a lot of things. So like a lot of, a lot of what you just mentioned right now is 
very informative, not just in terms of like just knowing a bit more on, on Trinidad and Tobago, but it sort of tells me certain things that I may not have known, uh, let's say, otherwise, if that makes sense. It's 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 the reason why I, I tend to sometimes go back anyway to like Lebanon, going up there, emphasizing that there are certain things that happened in, in that time that I grew up there, basically the past two decades and a half. Um, I agree completely and I appreciate that. Yeah. Focus as well, not just on the global. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so like back to the videos. You you have a number of them, uh, like I mentioned before, that are like youth oriented. And there's one called like a letter to Gen Zers, and another one on I think it's called Why It Sucks to Be Young. Can you just like, as you know, with as much detail as you want, really explain why the need to have these videos that are specifically targeted at Gen Zers. Let's say, I think. Well, I've noticed rather that. As time has passed, now I got a team since when I was like eight or nine years old. And mm -hmm. I've been living on it ever since. And I've seen you know, the conversation was around millennials for a while. And I've seen conversation with the Gen Z, you know, as millennials have aged and Gen Z has aged. I find it particularly important to focus on Gen Z because and at risk of generalizing, I would say we are progressive and we are conscious of the climate crisis. But a lot of people in my generation have no idea what to do about it. You know, um, the dominant narrative is shifting away from this, but is also to some extent still, you know, votes or, you know, reform, whatever the case may be. Even those who are vaguely anti-capitalist still fall into that. And so I try to address Gen Z specifically because, you know, speaking Gen Z to Gen Z, you know, we have these anxieties. I mean, thinking at the time that we grew up in, we had the 2008 crisis, we had the financial crisis, we've had several, you know, wars breaking out in various parts of the world, um, though different people have been affected very differently. You know, we've had refugee crises, we've had, you know, now this pandemic, and of course the climate lapse, and, you know, housing crises and all those different things. And basically it's, it's kind of worrying, you know, I, I try not to think too much. I think about the future a lot. That's sort of what I'm building towards, but I try not to think too much about my personal future because it's very easy to spiral that way, you know, because you never know what really will take place. You know, people have predicted that a pandemic would break out in 2020, and now here we are. Um, so I try not to worry too much about my personal future, just taking it, you know, one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time. Um, but I want to address Gen Z because I know the feeling, a lot of us are feeling, and I want to do what I can about it. Yeah, thanks for that. I'm trying to have a, a, a dimension of this podcast being about addressing or talking to Gen Zers, but, you know, I'm a millennial, so there, there will be limitations to that. In the context of Lebanon, specifically, there is the fact that right now, Gen Zers would have witnessed the first proper uprising, I would say in our modern history. We did have one in 2015 that wasn't as large as the 2019 one and everything since then. And so I think basically many millennials, so like just thinking of the activists that I know and organizers that uh, are more active than I am and still are, you know, we, we went through certain specific challenges and obstacles in whatever in the past decade that I feel could easily be 
like the mistakes that we've made could easily be reproduced and remade time and time again because the structure is in place to sort of like um, simplify it a bit but the structures in place um, encourage these specific narrow-minded uh, priorities so like one obvious one for me is the fact that whenever you have uprisings in Lebanon uh, well, you didn't have that many, but like at least the, the most recent one, for the most part, there is a, a complete, I guess you might call it like invisibilization of like Syrians and Palestinians and, and uh, migrant domestic workers who are like from the Philippines and Ethiopia and, and Sri Lanka and other places. They tend to not be included in demands on the streets or in protests, or if they do participate, which is not common, they would do so without sort of making themselves too visible, if that makes sense. Right. And this is something that I feel is still an ongoing mistake and a, a weakness in the otherwise like revolutionary momentum and movement and everything. And I do want the ones coming after us, so like people who are now turning, I don't know, 17, 18, whatever, uh, starting uni is usually how we, we, like university is usually how we, we start, we look at it in Lebanon. Not to have to also go through this entire exact same mistakes for the next decade. And that's something that I'm, I'm personally trying to tackle uh, more directly yeah. than I feel people should have done when I was going through it a decade ago. Yeah, I think um, a mistake that a lot of movements make is not learning from the mistakes of the past. You know? People yeah. are either yeah. ignorance of them or they villainize or misunderstand past movements or they co-opt and water down past movements or they idealize past movements, you know? It's not a sort of a nuanced perspective on, you know, these movements of the past, what mistakes they made, what was effective, what wasn't, you know, what did it achieve, what achievements ended up being failures in the long run, you know, like what looked like successes at first and ended up being failure. Like this sort of like, you know, post analysis of movements can really help future movements. And a lot of my, um, one of my videos is coming out um, at the end of this month on the 31st. Um, that actually is going to go quite deeply into like some of the past movements that have occurred and the mistakes that they have made, particularly related to the question of nonviolence and the role of nonviolence is played in movements. And so that's as much as I'll reveal for now, but you know, I really, that's something that really frustrates me, the lack of openness to and desire to learn from the mistakes of the past and and the successes of the past and move forward with those. I mean, I guess because people have been taught this very, it's different everywhere, but I think generally speaking, people have been taught a very liberalized version of history, very sanitized version of history. And so I think it's important, whatever movements, whatever uprisings, as radicals, I suppose, as anarchists, as socialists, to bring that nuanced, far-reaching, complex perspective. You know, even if the movement you're part of or the group you're part of doesn't end up identifying with necessarily your political label, having that label's voice in the movement can help to avoid certain pitfalls, you know. I think once you're friendly about it, you know, you show people, of course, different uprisings are very different situations. I'm, I'm assuming a sort of a 
mellow level of tension, you know, when dialogue is taking place, try to bring up mistakes we made in the past so people don't end up repeating the same errors. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's, it's actually a crucial component of thinking about different futures. I guess, again, the, the experience of Lebanon for me is a situation where, of course, in retrospect, and like I'm, I'm doing my PhD on something very similar, so I, I, I tend to think about this a lot now, but the, the lack of an understanding of the past, because in Lebanon, the past is actually taboo. Due oh, really? to, yeah, due to the civil war. Because the civil war ended on the, the agreement, the Ta'if agreement that ended the civil war, uh, ended with an amnesty law, which uh, basically allowed all of the warlords to, to come out of it, uh, like with no consequences on them. And what that ended up doing is like they just got in power. So that they are their current government is still them for the most part. And that's like three decades on. The president, the speaker of parliament, both of them are in their eighties and they, they were former warlords during the war. You know, just to name two examples, but many of the others as well. And so there is, you know, you can easily see why there's no incentive really to have any kind of reckoning with the past and with the crimes that were committed and the violence and the trauma and all of that. And in fact, I think it was the exact opposite that happened. In the 90s, we were sold the idea that the only way forward is basically capitalism. The the privatization yeah, of... I, I think I, at least I'd read that Lebanon was considered the Switzerland of the Middle East. <laughs> Yes, and you know the reason for that is that before the civil war, Lebanon had the laissez-faire, quote-unquote, laissez-faire economy. So pretty, pretty uh, market-oriented, or I shouldn't even say market-oriented, but a pretty business-oriented, pretty cooperation-oriented uh, economy. And that sort of continued on. Well, during the war, you had a war economy that that ended up uh, happening, and then, but after the war in the 1990s, you had the privatization of pretty much everything that was not destroyed during the war. Like One the, of the key aspects of capitalism, the pollution, the commons. Exactly. So you had like the entire coast of Lebanon. For the, I think most of it is privatized, if not destroyed. You have, you know, a lot of uh, land reclamations to to build new like hotels and you know private marinas and and that sort of thing. And the downtown of Beirut, which is historically known as El Balad, so like the country, which is a common Arab expression for for downtowns usually in in cities, is you know, it basically doesn't exist. It's just a company uh, called Solidaire. So people, like, I actually grew up saying, like, we're going to Solidaire now. Like, we're not, we're, it's just something that became associated with the company. Like, the location of this historical place became the company. And this is, for me, something that is specific about Lebanon, but at the same time, is a global story. We just have it in, in a different proportion. I think we just have more of it. So we don't have any public spaces. We don't have these things that other countries do have to kind of soften the blow if you want of, of capitalism whereas in lebanon it yeah we didn't have that something to soften the blow and i think on like if you the only way i think many of my parents generation like our parents generation balanced all of this out is to sort of have a de facto policy of not thinking too much about the past other than you know maybe our immediate family past or whatever but nothing that would imply or involve a wider community and that i think this is one of the barriers that the protests in lebanon have by and large not managed to overcome just because it's just so overwhelming it's not easy it's not, it's not something that's easy to tackle with that in mind this is a different pivot though too because i want to go back a bit to solar punk 
uh, that's something that's actually that makes me you know actually excited often and it's something that I feel is very very interesting I'm, I'm a recent arrival to the world of solar punk and I'm recent arrival to even like to afrofuturism even though I've even though I've, I've known of afrofuturism for some time now but yeah I haven't delved much into it that much yet as much as I would like to anyway but like in your view like aren't there interesting uh, intersections between solar punk and afrofuturism well yeah definitely um solar punk's aesthetics they draw a lot from asia and particularly japanese styles especially considering solar punk first came out to be cyberpunk genre right. but he definitely takes a lot from that sort of african influence as well um back the Wakanda portrayed in Black Panther and has been referenced often in solar punk circles as an element of a solar punk city design. It's not featured too heavily in the film, but you can see sort of, you know, like solar pa- um solar powered tramways and walkable cities and you know, like vertical gardening and right, not, not, things taking place. Now that you mention it, it's it's very obvious. <laughs> I didn't think about yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah, so I think there's there's definitely that connection there between Afrofuturism and Solar Punk. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for that. Uh, you ha- you have a cool video, so so it's not directly related, but I I wanted I wanted to bring it up anyway, on like a radical carnival. And so before asking you to just explain that video on on like cl- carnival and class and colonialism and all of that, I'll I'll just briefly mention a few like resources that I've personally found useful. So there is there's an episode of the You're Dead to Me podcast, which is pretty fun with um, Dr. Melissa Ono-George and Nathan Catton. Nathan, I don't know how to pronounce the name. But anyway, it's on the it's on the Notting Hill Carnival in, in London, which of course started in, in Trinidad and Tobago and made its way to London from what I understand. I, I will also mention a couple, like one TV series and one book that are not related, but I'll mention them anyway. There's a TV series called Small Axe by Steve McQueen, which looks into London's West Indian community between 69 and 82, and it's based on real events. And I also mentioned a book called The Black uh, God's Drums by P. Jelly Clark. I'll mention all, I'll, I'll include all of this in the blog post and descriptions, uh, folks, uh, which is set on the streets of New Orleans and reimagines post, a post-Confederacy American South, uh, but not the actual post-Confederacy American South. And I actually don't remember if in the book, because I read it like a couple of years ago, I don't remember if they mentioned Carnival. I just remember having that image in mind. I guess like New Orleans and and there is an explicit mention between dance and class and I just had this thing in mind. So I just mentioned, uh, so I'm just mentioning these three. So anyway, putting that aside, Trinidad and Tobago has this obviously special place in, in Carnival history. In the video description, like on, in your video on that, you write, and I quote, the history of Carnival in Trinidad is particularly fascinating as it fuses culture and class in a uniquely Caribbean context where colonialism's impacts continue to reverberate today, end quote. So can you tell us just a bit about it? Like what is the link between Carnival, class, and colonialism? Yeah, I think that really ties into something you mentioned earlier. Um, on discussions between anarchists and the need to not just look at the global sort of context, but also the specific, you know, cultural context uh, mm-hmm. taking place. Because upon digging into the history of carnival and stuff, I think, you know, um, there are aspects of it that we can really draw from because carnival was rebellion, you know. Originally it was brought over by the French across the and which was sort of class 
um, and being slaves were not allowed to participate in it. But after abolition, after um, the end of slavery, the enslaved reclaimed it, and then they also added some seasonings. Like, you know, so they added some um, sort of West African music and instruments and okay. that lyricism and different costumes and folklores and so on. So it, it went from being a, a gate-kept, upper-class affair to being a lower-class rebellion, you know. There'll be lyrics about, you know, the rulers at the time criticizing and cajoling them. And occasionally, um, folks would be, you know, fetting on the streets and stuff, playing carnival, and they would clash with the police and military and whatnot. There would be, on a couple of different occasions, riots that took place, most notably the Candlebury riot. And it's all stuff that I go into in the video, but also see how the carnival was eventually co-opted by the middle and upper class and now all the carnival bands and stuff are basically owned by the one percent um so i've seen through history how it went from being kidnapped to being a rebellion to being um claimed and packaged and and sort of a you know tourist way and so carnival in Sri Lankan context, has had a major role on and influences and has influenced all the views on class and race and gender and other politics. You know? Thanks for that. I, I found this really fascinating. It just so happened I had listened to that uh, Your Dead to Me episode that I mentioned. It's just a nice history podcast I enjoy. But the, the, the episode on the, the Notting Hill carnival started so they, they didn't focus only on Nottingham they started actually in Trinidad and Tobago and so I, I didn't know some of these things that you mentioned or most of these things that you just mentioned I found it very interesting how there was a very rapid like on the part of the of the authorities of the of the colonial authorities desire to crush it this yeah. thing that they really the even some of the quotes that you mentioned and you you had them with a sort of like a old school white colonial voice which was very funny but yeah, it's it, it's always more revealing than not, isn't it? Like it's always what is what are these things that they feel end up like what are these it's things a, that they actually threatened by? Yeah, it's a distinct hatred for for liberty, for freedom, for unapologetic, unrepentant culture and expression, because well, my project can't be allowed to just be, you know part of colonization is the colonization of the mind. Yeah. And if you should like have this opportunity for them to just like freely express themselves and stuff, they might they might think, they might assume that that means that they should be treated as an equal as a human if they have that range, you know. They might see that in their collective power, um, they can do a lot more, which is how it ends up ended up being so it co-opted because the government eventually ended up regulating and coming to an agreement sort of with the bands. And so it came under the government purview. And you know, after we've been independent, we remained, you know, there's a government body that runs Carnival. And as such, you know, what was once a bold declaration that, you know, we cannot be crushed, that no matter how much you try to you know, uh, suppress us, you know, we will continue to be, we will continue to express ourselves, right, yeah. we will be free, we will, 
resist your colonization, you know, it ended up with a, a government body that now runs Carnival. And I think what it really shows is that the, if they couldn't stop the colonized subject from being unabashed and free to express themselves and to resist that suppression of their agency and of their expression, um, they could at least, you know, try to control it and regulate it. And I think that's what they did. They ended up, you know, bring it into the system. And I think if there was a conscious effort to keep it outside of the system, we would be in a different situation right now because um, Carnival kind of went from a revolt to uh, just, just a party. It was always a party, but there was that radical element to it. You know, it's just mm -hmm. something that is run by our rulers and is almost like a, a limited window in which people can catch a break, you know, because a lot of our economy is structured around Carnival. There's the bands from the music industry to the bands and different band releases. And that, that's a whole that's a whole other subject. So I won't get too much into that. But it's just very interesting to me how Carnival went from a rebellion against colonialism to part of the package of neocolonialism and the tourism industry and went um being a way for the working class to express themselves, basically being kept once again by the ruling class with the prohibitive expenses and such. Right. With all of that in mind, and this has been a very long and like fascinating conversation, what are three books that you would recommend and why, if you if that's okay? Sure, I would. I, I've recommended this several times before at several different Times. I think everybody needs to read it, no matter what part of the world you're from, no matter who you are, you know. I think everybody needs to read The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love by Bell Hooks. Um, you know, I cried reading that book. And I it's something that I want to return to ever so often because it has had such a tremendous influence on my understanding of patriarchy's impact on, you know, men's psyches, you know, um, a lot of sort of anti-feminist types who don't recognize that, who think that feminists don't recognize the way that men feel in our society, the way that men feel pain and hate in our society. But I think Bell Hooks addresses it in a way that is not only compassionate, but also doesn't be the the man that she's addressing, even though she's addressing everybody, she doesn't attempt to soften the severity of patriarchy on non-men. But at the same time, she has this sort of a motherly energy to her in her, in her writing, where she's able to reach those men who hurt others, but also hurt themselves to sort of dig into themselves and address the impact of patriarchy on themselves and how they are impacting others. 
Another book I would recommend is The Ecology of Freedom by Murray Bookchin. Um, it is, in my view, one of the most important texts of the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, especially considering the situation we are in. I think everybody should read it, whether you count yourself a socialist or not. I think he brings fresh analysis to the situation. And I think that if the environmentalist movement as a whole had picked up this book and picked it up a lot sooner, I think we'd be in a very different place right now. We're going to be talking about just adaptation. We're going to be talking about you know actually being able to solve the crisis, I think. Because he wrote this in the, I believe it was the mid mid 20th century. In the 80s, well, yeah. there was, you know, there was still some time, sorry, the late 20th century. So there was still some time, you know, um, probably less time than if it had been earlier, but if we had taken some steps to address it now, we might be having a completely different conversation, you know. So I think it's very important for all folks who care about the environment to read. And the last book I would recommend is, of course, Anarchy by Eric Professor. Um, I think it's just a, a very good introduction to what I and other anarchists believe. Obviously, it's a very old book. It was written, um, I think, in the late 19th century, but it's still a very, either, either late 19th or early 20th century, but it's still is very applicable and very relevant today. So yeah, I recommend Will to Change by Masculine Human Love by Bell Hooks, Because Your Freedom by Mary Bookchin, and Anarchy by Eric Romero-Tester. Well, on that amazing note, Andrew, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks for having me, really appreciate it.
Besides Islam, it is made possible by supported content now. Like the support for a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash Islam. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.